Thank you, Jessica. Good morning. Are you enjoying the break in the weather? Not waking up dripping in sweat as soon as you walk outside? Thank the Lord. He's in control of all that. Well, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, what has been called by many scholars Matthew's Passion, and it's or St. Matthew's Passion. It's chapters 26, 27, and 28. So we're really near the end, but what you notice is almost like the closer you get to the end, the more Matthew slows down because we are now in the middle of the what we might consider the hub of all things, and that is the death of Christ. The very reason he visited this earth, was born into this world, was to go to the cross. And so Matthew just slows it down and he almost gives us a play-by-play details of how the, the plan of redemption unfolded. And when he does that, you can't help but to notice some very stark contrast because, you know, things can be blurry, but now when you come to the very end, people's hearts are really exposed. Like if you're, if you're for Christ, you know it by the end of this gospel. If you're not, you know it by the end of this gospel. What I want to do this morning is cover um, verses 30 to 35 and 45 through 56. And I'm going to purposely skip 36 through 46, which describes Jesus' Jesus's experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want to actually save that for uh, next Sunday, our Communion Sunday. We won't do a psalm, but I want to focus in on this passage. Because this pass, in this passage, Jesus wrestles with the cup that he has to drink, the cup that the Father has given him. And we come and share the Lord's Supper, and we also partake of the cup of Christ. And so this passage will beautifully um, complement our time of worship as we come to the Lord's table next week. So I'm just going to kind of bypass that or really save it for later. But we have a lot, still have a lot of ground to cover, so I want to pick up where we left off and look at verses 30 through 35 and I've entitled it, for lack of better words, Hold That Thought, simply because I'm not going to go into detail this time about the denials and the betrayals. I'm going to save that for when Peter actually betrays Jesus and not get into it at the prediction. Um, But we'll go ahead and read this. And I want you to notice in particularly that it was just hours before this prediction by Christ, when they were instituting the Lord's Supper, he said, one of you will betray me. And they all kind of, I'm guessing, looked around the room maybe and even looked at their themselves and they questioned their own hearts and they said, is it I? And this time, it's the exact opposite response. So verse 30, when they had sang, when they had sung a hymn, yes, Jesus sang hymns. They sang a hymn together. They sang a psalm together, no doubt. They went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, This very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. 
Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then what happens? Notice these next words. And all the disciples said the same. Now, we know Peter, he's the impulsive one. He's a spokesperson. If somebody's got something to say, Peter just speaks for everybody. And if, if there's something to do, Peter acts. He's very impulsive. And so Peter just flat out denies it twice here. There's no way, just no way that I would deny you. And I back that up with my life. So it's not just Peter being adamant and reacting, but they're all on board. I'm with Peter. I'm with you, Peter, on this. I will not deny the Lord. So it's interesting that we get to see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man commingle in this very prediction. Because Jesus has said, it is written and it's going to happen. And yet they have denied it. And you will watch them that they make their own decisions about life and about their commitment to Christ. But when the time comes, something changes. And we'll get into that later, but you know it's coming. That this commitment is based on a circumstantial commitment. Because right now, with Christ so close, with the kingdom feeling so close, he's, he's established it, he's laid it out, and they really feel a part of it. And very committed to it. They've given up a lot of things, left it behind. I'm following you wholeheartedly. They, I believe, truly believe themselves, their own words right now. But it turns out it's based on circumstantial commitment. Because when the circumstances change, the commitment, unfortunately, changes. So we wanted to point that out. Now I want to skip over the Garden of Gethsemane and pick up with verses 45 56. This is where we hear Jesus's famous words about living by the sword. So then they came to the disciples. He came to the disciples and he said to them. Sleep and take your rest later. Now, I'm kind of cheating a little bit and in getting into the Garden of Gethsemane just to set the context because they have been napping while he has been sweating drops of blood. Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword. And struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once. I'm sorry. Do you not think that I can appeal to my father 
And he will not at once send me more than twelve legions of angels. But how then should the scripture be fulfilled? That it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as, uh, out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scripture of the prophets must be fulfilled. And then all the disciples left him and fled. There they go. Fulfillment of prophecy. When the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. See, circumstances have changed. Now, under this kind of threat, under this kind of light, with these conditions... They're confused. They're not as certain. And so they flee. Well, there's a lot going on here, but I think the approach I want to take is to, is to really focus more in on what Jesus has to say. It. So, about, so things are happening. People are making decisions. Things are going down. But Jesus, Matthew doesn't just pass on information. He also gives us a little bit of a commentary. And what I'm most interested always is in what Jesus has to say or what God has to say. Not so much about what the characters in the Bible did, because sometimes we have a hard time figuring out, was that right or wrong? But when God speaks, then you know, then you have the clarity. So I want to kind of frame the rest of this passage based on that. And so, first of all, he speaks to Judas in verse 50. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Judas, what do we do with this guy? Judas, a disciple who walked with the Lord, served the Lord, was one of the twelve. What do we do with him? We don't we, we, we frequently don't know what to do with this guy, Judas. Now, many would say he is the worst sinner that ever lived for sure. And in Dante's Inferno, if you've ever read that it's a little deep, but he doesn't just put Judas in hell. He puts Judas in a special place in hell, like the hell of all hells, the inner, the behind the curtain of hell, where he is constantly tormented and devoured by the enemy. And then we come to more modern thinkers, thinkers of our age, who are more sympathetic. To Judas. Ah, oh, the poor guy. He must have, he probably didn't really know what he was doing. He probably had a rough childhood. I'm sure he meant well, but he was just troubled and he couldn't help himself. Well, Judas did know what he was doing, he did not mean well. He was the one that sought out. Chief priest. This is all his idea. It is his way to personally gain. Also, according to the Anchor Bible commentary, culturally, what he did in the kiss itself was a form of betrayal. As my understanding is culturally, when you greet a group of people and your rabbi is among them, you don't greet him first, you greet your peers and you greet him last with the kiss, the greeting, because he has the place of honor. 
and to go straight to him first and greet him, in a sense, is a little act of rejection of his authority. So there were some cultural underpinnings there that were happening as well. So who is this Judas? Is he the worst sinner that ever lived? That's a tough one, isn't it? I'd say yes and no. I'd say yes, based on Jesus' words, it would be better for you had you never even been born because he plays this unfortunate role by his own volition in the plan of redemption. He plays the part that gets the wheels turning that sends Jesus to the cross. I do not envy that position at all. And so I guess you could say from that perspective, yeah, that was just low down, dirty. He was a turncoat. He had every opportunity to worship Jesus in spirit and truth. And he lived by the flesh. He chose himself. On the other hand, you can't go so far as to say he understood the full significance of his actions. Because not even the disciples saw, none of the disciples, even true believers, saw exactly how Jesus would die, even though he predicted it and he'd been trying to prepare them. He, there's no way that Judas could have known exactly how all things would go down and the choice, even had a choice between Jairus or Barabbas, I mean, Jesus and Barabbas and so forth. But still, he is absolutely guilty. He is a traitor. So what is G- Judas's real crime? Here, his real sin. Well, Judas, Judas sold Jesus out. That's the bottom line. That's what. He, that's the decision he made. He sells him out. He used Jesus to profit, and he comes to the conclusion at this point in his life: thirty pieces of silver will get me farther in life. Will get me what I want in life more than Jesus. So Jesus has to go and the silver will come. So that's his his evaluation. That's what he thinks of Jesus' worth at this point. 30 pieces of silver will profit me much more. So he he sells him out as someone who has lost his worth to Judas. At one time he was worth following, but not anymore. Now, Timothy Keller says there's two kind of people in this uh, world. There are those who serve Jesus and there are those who sell Jesus out. Meaning you're using Jesus as a means to your end. You're not actually serving him. You're not living to serve him. He's living to serve you. He lives to bring you pleasure. Those that live to serve God, they give their lives to bring their Heavenly Father pleasure, whatever it takes. There's a big difference. There's two opposite approaches. I don't think we see this any more clearly than in the book of Job, even in the first chapter. Because you will recall that Satan is roaming and he comes before God. And God says, in your roamings, as you peer into men's hearts and men's doings, have you ever considered my servant, servant, Job? There is none like it. And what does Satan say? Of course there's none like him. Of course there's none like Job. Look what you have done for him. 
You have hedged around him. You have given him everything the human heart could possibly want. He's got the security of family. He's got legacy. He's got heritage. He has land. He has livestock. He has good friends. Of course he serves you and worships you. What else would you expect? But take those things away from him and he will not worship you. There it is. So it's it's he's accusing Job of worshiping God as a means to an end. Well, God gets me all these things I want in life. Of course, I'm going to serve him. And he says, no, you take them away and he won't serve you. Now, we know that book and we know what happens. And God does take these pleasures away from Job. And this guy, we find out he is a servant, not a seller. Because he says, I will not with boils and blisters and pain. And he's lost everything God had given him. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away everything. He says, I will not curse my God. I am in it for him. My Redeemer lives. Now, that's a servant. That's a worshiper. Not so long ago, we looked at Matthew called a woman who poured very extravagant oil, perfume oil upon Jesus. The disciples were indignant. That's, that's, that's a waste. It's not worth it. Why would you do such a thing? And she's just worshiping the Lord. I think the other Gospels identify her as Mary of Bethany. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That, that's the worth that she brings into this relationship. Jesus, you're everything. I don't, whatever I have, I'll give you anything. This isn't worth anything to me. That's a worshiper. Now, the seller says, this is worth everything to me. And if, and if you're a means to get it, sure, I'm going to go to church. I'll pray however many prayers you want me to pray. I'll have my devotions. I'll get up extra early and sacrifice my sleep. I'll be involved as long as you give me what I want. That's a seller. Now, we see this in America, in the West, Western Christianity, do we not? So we have a person, they commit their lives to the Lord and they're involved in church and they're doing very well. Say God's even transforming their life. As we sang, who brings um, the chaos back into order? That's one of the things that happens when the true spirit of God comes into our lives, because that's just what God does. He brings things into order and he puts our lives back together. He sanctifies us. And so you have people going around, uh, going along with the Christian faith. They're doing well and they begin to ask God and petition God for something that they're convinced they need in their life. And it makes perfect sense, God, based on what I'm doing, based on how I'm performing and how well I'm doing and my faith in you, there's no reason you shouldn't give this to me. And they don't get it. And it causes a friction. And it causes doubt. Or the other side is when we're going along and we've we've embraced Christ and he's putting our lives back together. And then from out of nowhere, terrible crises and tragedy strikes. We didn't ask for that. And we begin to think, wait a minute. Um, if you're not going to deliver what you delivered, I, I don't know that I really bargained for this. That's seller's reasoning. Because I'm in it for what you can give. 
instead of in it for who you are. And it's a difference in a mindset. And so the servant is looking for ways to bring pleasure to God. And the seller is looking for ways God can bring pleasure to them. And we have this mindset, and it's just wrong, that the Christian life should be smooth now because Christ's in it. And then so when things aren't smooth, we don't know how to embrace that into our walk. What did I do wrong, God? Where did you change? It's a bargaining chip. Selling out Jesus is a real thing, and that's the conclusion that Judas came to. And we today have to wrestle with the same things. Who is God to us? Why are we in this? Why are we here this morning? You know, you might be in that vein where you're in that blessing. You're in the river of blessing and God gives us the rivers of blessing. where You're just being floated along, going with the current. God's bringing this. I didn't even ask for that. Wow. And then all of a sudden you take a turn to the left, to the right, and it's entirely different circumstances and atmosphere. Is he the same God? Is he just as worthy? Or were we just in it for the blessing? It's something we all have to wrestle with and struggle with, isn't it? The scripture says God is always worthy. He is not a circumstantial God. He is above all this. He's transcendent in anything we have. He's worthy of the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. We have to make these kind of decisions. The cross makes everything we do perfectly reasonable. How do you become a servant? How do you become somebody who's sold out? Not by trying harder, not by willpower, by gazing at the cross, by understanding the cross. Why? Why does the cross have such transforming power on the human mind and spirit? Because it tells us how far God went for us. It talks about the substitution. It tells us he held nothing back and we did not deserve anything. And it begins, that kind of love begins to break down the barriers. And any reason we wouldn't follow him to the end is gone. Because it's perfect, perfectly reasonable for us to want to give Christ everything. Our, our hands, our feet, our mind, our heart. And that's what he demands. But when you look at life in light of the cross, then it makes perfect sense. And loss... Is but gain. So those are his words to Judas. Friend, do what you came to do. It's a warning, but it's also an acknowledgement. I understand. You have said in your heart, you've made the decision. Things are already in progress. But be warned. And then after the kiss of betrayal, he has a few words for Peter. We know that the guards come and seize Jesus. And Matthew says there was a disciple that pulled out his sword. You almost know who he is, even though Matthew doesn't tell us, the other Gospels tell us. Who is it but Peter? Impulsive Peter. He's packing. Sword rights. I got sword rights. And he's ready for action. I mean, he's been on board with Jesus. And he sees things are getting a little touch and go here. 
I got to be prepared to defend myself or especially to defend the Messiah. I mean, he's got something going. He's, he started the progress. So the kingdom's rolling right along. I'm already thinking about who gets to sit at the right hand and the left hand when it actually is fully established. So Peter has an agenda. And he assesses the situation. He sees what happened. Jesus is an innocent man. These are bad guys. I got to do something. And so he jumps up. He pulls out his sword. And he strikes. Now either he's an incredibly accurately accurate swordsman. And kind of like, there goes your ear. You step closer. I'll get the other one. Or I'll get your heart. Or he's a terrible aim. And he was going for the chest or something. And he just, whoo, just an ear drops. That's not even what's important. But what matters is what Jesus has to say about it. Not how people act or don't act, but what Jesus has to say about it. So what are his words to Peter? And his words to Peter, incredibly, are stand down. I mean, if there's ever a time to be hyped, if there's ever a time for the adrenaline rush to come and for you to take up arms, surely this would be it. And Jesus says, Peter, stand down. Sheathe. Your sword. Now, why? What's the reason he gives? For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then? It could go that way. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So Peter wants to solve the situation like most of us with the sword. Now, in Jewish culture, really in, in pretty much every culture, but in Jewish culture, the sword represented, of course, uh, military power, military might. That's how you got places. That's how you conquered your enemy or took over territory. It was by the power of the sword. But it also represented justice. That's how justice was executed or judgment sometimes by the power of the sword. You break the law, you do wrong. Sometimes you face the sword. He's packing a sword and he concludes these bad guys need judgment because they're, what they're doing is wrong. And the way to, uh, to stop this is to overpower them with military might, if you will, with the sword. That's his conclusion. Jesus basically says, wrong answer. That's not how the kingdom works. Makes Perfect sense with worldly thinking. It's, it's antithetical to kingdom thinking. Now, I do admit that some take this passage to justify pacifism and say, see, Jesus says this is the end of our wars. Christians aren't supposed to fight. They're not supposed to take up arms and so forth. That's not what this passage is teaching. And if you want to take it literally like that, then I'd say, okay, then you have to call Jesus a liar. You're going to take it literally. Because he also said, if you take up the sword, those that take up the sword die by the sword. Is that true? Not on every case. Not everybody that takes up. Some of them live to talk about it, right? So just That's not the point here that Jesus is making. Of course, he backs it up. So why stand down? Where did Peter go wrong? Well, the first thing that stands out is how can the scriptures be fulfilled if you're going to keep pulling out your sword? There's a plan in progress here. And that plan, as we've already seen, 
involves substitution. It's unavoidable in order for the kingdom of God to come. In order for the world to be saved. Christ must not be saved. Must not be spared. Must give himself sacrificially to the world. In order for you, Peter, to stand, in order for you to get the kingdom that you want, in order for you to stand next to God, I have to hang. There's no other way for the kingdom to come. That's how you get it. You get it through my giving of myself. Where I get the punishment that you deserve. And it's the exact opposite of worldly thinking. I'm telling you, if I was there... I would have been right with Peter. I would have assessed the situation exactly like that. And I would have been wrong. It's worldly thinking. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's through everything is through Christ. And Peter's saying they have it coming to him. They're wrong. They're bad. This is unjust. You're innocent. And in essence, Jesus is saying, oh, yeah. They have it coming to them. What they are doing is malicious and vile. And you know what? I'm going to take it. I'm going to take what they have coming to them. Because that's how the kingdom comes, I'll spill my blood. I'll bear their judgment. You know, it reminds me, the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, where Adam and Eve decide to rebel against the Lord. You know, actually, I'd rather be my own God, call my own shots. I think you're holding out on me. I don't think you're being completely honest with me. And based on my assessment, I'm better off to do what I want to do. And of course, the consequences of that or to be expelled because now they are defiled, they're sinners, they can't be in the presence of a holy God. And what Jesus or what God does is he takes them outside of the garden and the garden represents the unhindered presence of God. And he takes them outside of that and then he does what? He places a cherubim. I don't know what they are, but I don't want to mess with them. I know we paint them as little chubby cheek, whatever. I don't want to mess with them. Cherubim with a flaming sword to keep them out of the unhindered presence of God. Flaming sword. To get to God, you got to take the sword. You got, you're going to get cut down to try to get to God. And that's the kingdom thinking. And Jesus, in essence, is saying, I'll take the sword. I'll be the one to get cut down. So you can get back into the unhindered presence of God. Is the plan of Holy Scripture not beautiful and meticulous? And it all points to Christ. And here He is. I mean, I, mean, I want to say it's Christ at His best, but it's not. It's just Christ, how he always is. That's what he came for. It's the way God thinks. We sang this in one of, in our last song, Christ the Cornerstone. He's the anchor of hope, Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. Brothers, therefore, since we have confidence 
to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is his flesh. Without the flesh of Christ being torn, without the flesh of Christ being ripped, spilled, there is no way for us to get to the Father. So to, to, to save Jesus, when we, we want to jump in and save Him, is worldly thinking to save Jesus is to deny the need for substitution. Peter, put your sword back in the sheath. Another reason it's worldly thinking is because the kingdom doesn't come. Jesus has been saying this all along. The kingdom does not come with worldly force. It's not a bully. It doesn't work like the world's values. Now, we manipulate, we coerce, we bully, we overpower. That's how we get what we want, and it works in the world system. It's not how the kingdom of God works at all. Again, it's the exact opposite. It's not throwing away your societal power or your, your, your um, financial power, or your political power, or your military power. How does the kingdom change people if not by the sword? By sacrificial servanthood. By rather than taking, giving. Rather than preserving, giving. That's what has the power to change hearts. That's what we signed up for when we said, I'm a disciple of Christ and I'm going to follow you. We, we've said no more of the world ways. We're going to do it Christ's way. Christ's way is what actually transforms a heart and not coerces and manipulates and pushes. By giving, not taking. By dying, not living. By being last, not first. And just think about it. In real life, and it sound, you might say, well, that sounds so lofty in real life. From what you know about history, who was the most influential human figure ever? Ever. And nobody will deny this. Jesus Christ. Who changed more people? Who, who changed more cultures, nations? societies than Jesus Christ. How big was his army? How many swords did he have? How much money did he have in his campaign fund? He had no place to lay his head. He had nothing of worldly earth or, or worth to give. There was nothing there by world standards. And yet he transformed the world. He transformed my heart through the sacrificial giving. And all along he's been telling his disciples this. It's purity. It's forgiveness. It's taking one for the team. Instead of hoarding your money. You're just giving it out. Instead of lusting after fame, you're avoiding it. Because those are things that 
trip up kingdom living. The very things that your flesh wants and the world goes after, that's exactly what you don't want. Mercy. These are the things that transforms, transform hearts. So rather than clinging to these things, clothe your enemy. See, Christ gives... The gospel gives a way for us to actually really get along without the sword. Based on how we view each other. Clothe your enemy. Walk the extra mile. We're all created in the image of God. No matter what race, what nation. We're all in the same boat. On the same little ball. It gives us a reason, a good reason to be able to get along. Because he took our pain. He gave us His peace. So it changes the way that we look at people. And then lastly, why is, was it such a wrong thing for Peter to draw a sword? Well, I think Peter's train of thought reveals another way of worldly thinking. And it's a little tricky. So just bear with me here. I'm not saying this is what this passage is teaching. But I think it's kind of oozing out of it as we look at the nature of Christ and the nature of man. Peter assesses the situation and by jumping into action with the sword, which means military power and judgment, he's making a moral judgment. And he's saying, you're bad people and I'm on the side of the good people, which would be Jesus. And so I'm going to make a judgment that I need to step in here and put a stop to this. Thinking worldly, it makes perfect sense. And yet, right in that thinking is an inherent danger that Jesus has also been constantly warning us about in our own hearts. And that is our tendency to group ourselves among humanity between the bad guys and the good guys. Because when we start looking at ourselves as the good guys, then we don't really need Christ. We don't need the substitutionary death of Christ because we're on his side already. That's the morality. That's the religion that John Razima was talking about this morning in Sunday school class. And all of that human goodness and all those great decisions and all the things that really are good in this world and count for something do not count in the kingdom of God. The gospel says there are none that are good. There are none that are righteous. We all have failed. So when we look at humanity through the eyes of the gospel, we're just all repentant sinners. We have to be careful about grouping ourselves into, well, we're the good guys and they're the bad guys because we could talk ourselves out of salvation. Jesus died for all. The Christian looks out and says, what's wrong with the world? I'm what's wrong with the world. Not the, all the bad people out there. Maybe you're doing time in prison and you're sinning in prison, but I'm sinning out here in my freedom. There's two different kingdoms at work and we're in both of them because we have citizenship in heaven. And so we are constantly being challenged to evaluate things and grade things according, well, here's how the world does it, but here's what the truth of God says.
And it matters in how we live our lives. And it matters in how we look at people that we see every day. Driving down the road, people of different color, nationality. The gospel informs us how to live and how to view one another. How to think about sin and how to think about righteousness. Thirdly, he speaks to the crowds. He said, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples left him and fled. We already saw that. So what is Jesus saying with these words? And what can we learn about ourselves, perhaps? Now, from the world's perspective, they have the upper hand, right? Uh, we got you this time. Judas betrayed you. We know who you are. We got enough manpower here to bully you, to overpower you, to get our way and to take you in. But he rebukes them with the truth. And in essence, in essence, he's saying, look, let's be honest. You could have grabbed me any time. Why are you coming in dark? Because you're evil. Because you're scheming. Because you're up to no good. You know the thing about being up to no good? You never really know for sure how it's going to turn out, right? Because you know you're doing something wrong. And a lot of times doing wrong things don't always turn out as you plan. They're scared. They're scheming. They're evil. They're, they're under the cover of darkness. It's all illegal, by the way, what they're doing, even by Jewish standard. They're a little frightened. He calls them out on it. Could have taken me in deadlight, in daylight. Where, where's the uprising? Where's the danger that I'm posing to society? It's not anything to do with keeping people safe. It has everything to do with their power being threatened. There's no rebellion here on Jesus' part. And yet, even this, he says, you're fulfilling Scripture. Exactly as it has been written, your decisions to do this are fulfilling Scripture. And it's fulfilling Scripture in this. While their evil is in motion, it is their evil that stops evil in its tracks. Because it is their evil as well as Judas's that take Jesus to the cross. When Jesus dies for sin, He conquers the grave. He conquers evil. He stops it in His tracks. So, God, in His infinite wisdom, uses evil to conquer evil, uses death to conquer death. So it's all going as planned. And I can't help but to love the the few times in Scripture when we get a glimpse of what's happening in the realms that we can't see with our physical senses. And he says, Peter... It's like, it's like Elijah and Kings. Lord, open Elijah's eyes to what's really happening. Remember the battle? We're way overpowered. I might as well just cut my own throat. We're going to lose. And he says, look, Lord, open his eyes to what's really going down. And the chariots of fire 
the angels of the Lord, the army of the Lord was all. And, and Jesus, he is so close to heaven. I mean, he's, he's, he is heaven. He's a part of it. And he's like, uh, in essence, Peter. Okay, your sword. Over 12 legions of angels. And if you learn anything about angels, they love to unswervingly serve their master. And I mean, any little twitch could have set the tables in a different light. So your sword, Peter, put it back. It's not how the kingdom goes down. So as predicted, disciples scattered. And we have a scene here where it seems like all is lost, right? They scattered. Man, what do we do now? Well, we can't fight with our sword. He said we can't do that, but yet he's taken captive. Our lives are in danger. All is lost. The kingdom's gone. We're out of control. And even in the darkest night, when it seems like there's no hope, what's actually happening? God is on the move. So we can take that home. The darkest of night, no matter what circumstances seem to be overcoming us, everything that could possibly go wrong is going wrong. The sovereign God is on the move. May God bless the preaching of His Word this morning.